Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long. Today, they don't rob banks the way they used to. Now you can just be sitting like at the other corner of the world, and as long as you manage to breach into the IT systems, then it's possible that you, you manage to get away with a lot of data or a lot of money. We investigate the rise in cyber bank robberies. And should economists take more inspiration from Charles Darwin's ideas about the natural world? Economists have for years neglected an evolutionary perspective on the way the economy works. First, for markets in general and tech companies in particular, the pandemic has been a giddy ride. When lockdowns were first announced, some firms like WeWork, the shared office giant, took big hits, as did ride-hailing apps. But the sudden shift to working online from home has been a bonanza for other tech firms. One company that's truly been riding this storm is SoftBank, the world's biggest technology investor by far. In the past four years, the Japanese company has poured $90 billion into tech across five continents, in companies ranging from pre-revenue startups to big names such as Uber and ByteDance, the owner of TikTok. It also has a big stake in Didi, the Chinese ride-sharing app featured on last week's Money Talks. But between February and March last year, SoftBank's share price plunged by over 50%. Since then, its recovery has been equally spectacular. Last month, SoftBank reported an annual profit of $46 billion, the most ever recorded by a Japanese company. So how did it happen? And what's responsible for the company's changing outlook? The man behind the fortunes of SoftBank is Son Masayoshi, known as Masa. You can really sum it up as the, the Massa show. He wants SoftBank to be the biggest investment company, the biggest technology company, and that's what's driving what the, what the company's doing. Tanzin Booth is The Economist technology and business editor. He's just remarkably risk-hungry. Then he's, he's got a real knack for spotting tech giants of the future. And then the other thing is that he's a real believer in sort of utopian tech visions, the singularity when computer intelligence is meant to overtake the human sort. And he's just extraordinarily ambitious. In the spring of 2020, he seemed far from uh, increasing the sum of global happiness and creating a sort of tech utopia. Things were going badly wrong, weren't they? That's absolutely right. The utopia was was collapsing. The Vision Fund tried to IPO WeWork, um, an office sharing company that markets basically rumbled and refused to accede to the high valuation that had been put on it. And then you had sort of confidence in Massa, confidence in SoftBank and in the Vision Fund really took a massive hit. And then a few months later, 
COVID came along. And then a lot of the Vision Fund's investments, for instance, in ride-hailing firms, food delivery, looked like they were going to be really badly hit by lockdowns and sort of stay-at-home economy. So it was just a perfect storm of worry around the company. The share price fell by over 50%. Massa got quite close to the edge. And then the Fed started pumping in liquidity into debt markets. SoftBank itself announced an asset sale around $41 billion. So you had a disastrous situation turned into a spectacular rebound. Those do sound fairly drastic measures it took, but they but they worked. So, so what's its situation now? Well, so on top of the market changes, you've obviously had a massive digital acceleration. And that has just been brilliant for SoftBank. So the new normal of meetings, food delivery, education, medical care, shopping, everything being mediated online, that's exactly Mass's vision. So the situation now for SoftBank is that they're just looking like they're riding this trend better than any other company. So the company has gone from survival mode to what people call a sort of massive ATM machine spewing out cash. So you're describing quite a profound change in SoftBank's fortunes, but has there also been a change in the way it operates? Is it still what you called the Massa Show? There's no question that the WeWork crisis already had sparked a lot of changes. So they got a hedge fund, an activist hedge fund, Elliott Management, came in and pushed for changes, notably a big share buyback. And Elliott also pushed for corporate governance improvements. There's a sharply higher number of independent directors on the board. They put a woman on the board for the first time. It had been an all-male board. I think that Massa is still really very much at the centre of things. You've mentioned uh, the WeWork crisis, and I suppose that's the most high profile of SoftBank's investments that have turned sour or proved troubled. Are there other ones that have proved controversial? Yes, it's not just WeWork. SoftBank has got involved in Europe's two biggest corporate scandals in recent years. So Wirecard, a fraudulent German payments processor, and Greensill, a bankrupt British supply chain finance company. Tell me more about Wirecard, Tamsin. Well, the interesting thing about Wirecard is that SoftBank went in and signed an agreement with the company after the Financial Times had already raised questions about the firm's solidity. And then the SoftBank involvement made Wirecard's share price rise. And the really unusual thing there is that SoftBank itself didn't put money into Wirecard, an affiliate fund that was managed by the same body that manages the Vision Fund did. And it turned out later that the money in this affiliate fund was money from individual SoftBank executives and also Mubadala, one of Abu Dhabi's sovereign wealth funds. And what about Greensill? It's very well known in this country now because of the role of a former Prime Minister, David Cameron, in in lobbying for it. But what was SoftBank's involvement? Again, Greensill was quite an odd one for SoftBank. I mean, in one sense, it was just a straightforward tech investment, but it also fitted into SoftBank's idea of an ecosystem of firms that can work together and do deals with each other that sort of boost um, revenue and market position for each of the firms. It's sort of this idea of a self-reinforcing group of companies. But it was quite interesting exactly how Greensill fulfilled this function within the the ecosystem. So, So basically it was that Greensill ended up lending to other vision fund companies that were struggling. 
And the thing is that not only did SoftBank have that relationship with Greensill, but it also put money into funds run by Credit Suisse, investment bank that invested in Greensill. So you had a circular flow of funding here that really benefited SoftBank. And, you know, certainly um, parties around the, um, the, the collapse of Greensill that have lost a lot of money are looking pretty closely at at everyone's involvement here. Credit Suisse is preparing um, a lawsuit versus SoftBank over its Greensill involvement. SoftBank's role with Greensill, I'd say, would have probably got a lot more attention had the company been in a weaker position than it is, kind of profits-wise and performance-wise. But, you know, because SoftBank's on such a roll right now, I think shareholders aren't perhaps asking quite so many questions as they, as they otherwise would. Of course, Tamsin, we should be clear that SoftBank said that any potential conflicts of interest were appropriately managed. But you were saying that shareholders aren't asking too many questions because it's been so successful lately. But what about regulators? Are they looking at SoftBank? Essentially, SoftBank Group is regulated by Japan's authorities. And Japan, you know, perhaps has slightly different corporate governance habits. And the other thing that observers of SoftBank note is that Situations like Wirecard and Greensill seem quite a long way away from Tokyo. And then you also have SoftBank Investment Advisors, which runs the Vision Fund and was the entity that signed the deal with Wirecard. So, Tamsin, to, to sum up, what's the secret to SoftBank's success? Is Son Masayoshi a genius? Well, when you report on SoftBank and talk to the company's worst critics, executives who've left and, and complain about the company... You get lots of negativity, but what shines through is that there is a genuine belief at the core of it that Massa does have some kind of magic touch when it comes to predicting the future of technology and taking advantage of it. I think also he's he's a guy in a hurry, right? He's he's 63, people are talking about succession, and he wants to witness the full fruits of the artificial intelligence revolution. So I think there's genius there, whatever that is, but the speed of trying to reach his goals brings complications with it. But right now it's certain that the market is looking at SoftBank less as a risk than as a huge, great cash machine. Tamsin, thanks very much. Thank you. For much more of Tamsin's reporting on SoftBank, and it's a great read, head to economist.com slash podcast offer for a special subscription to The Economist. Last week on Money Talks, we looked at how American businesses are coping with rising inflation. The Federal Reserve has said that it may eventually raise its policy rate long anchored at zero. It came as a bit of a shock when Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, was saying things like, we need to tighten policy slightly sooner than expected. On Tuesday, our Wall Street correspondent, Alice Fullwood, talked to Jason Palmer on our daily current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, about the impact this could have. It seems as though growth has returned, and it has returned, and so is inflation, a little more quickly than perhaps people were expecting. And so the Fed saying, the information has changed, so we've changed our minds, is, is quite a reasonable thing to do. Do search for The Intelligence wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Next. In old movies, balaclava-clad people would rush into an old-fashioned bank, hold customers and cashiers up at gunpoint, and demand access to the massive vault in the basement before leaving with bags full of cash. Everybody listen up! Take a deep breath and relax. We're here to rob the bank, not you. But while these heists do still happen, today criminals can sit over a laptop and automate a process that makes them vastly more money than would ever be held in a single vault. It's not a new problem. Banks are losing billions of dollars to cybercrime, and they've been at the forefront of cybersecurity since financial transactions moved online in the late 90s. But it's getting harder to control. Before, you know, you had to smuggle into the bank uh, and, and uh, take a huge amount of risk um, to, to carry out a, a, a theft. Whereas now you can just be sitting like at the other corner of the world and as long as you manage to breach into the IT systems, then it's possible that you, you manage to get away with a lot of data or a lot of money. Mathieu Favard is a finance correspondent for The Economist. So bankers will tell you that they come second only to the defense industry in terms of how well they are protected against cyber attacks. So, so we're talking like military-grade defenses, really, really strong. But bankers themselves are not denying that they are a target of cyber thieves. So it's definitely happening. It's hard to get a sense of how big the threat is. I'm going to ask you to try anyway, Mathieu. I appreciate it. it's very hard, but do we have any idea of the scale of the sums involved and, and who's losing it? Is, it? is it the banks or is it their customers? Is it people like you and me? Well, this is very hard to tell because reporting requirements vary across countries and, and banks themselves forbid staff from discussing cyber losses. So, so very little of it comes into the open. But, you know, some examples, just anecdotes in recent years suggest it can be quite a lot. In 2018, for example, a bank in Pakistan lost $6 million in 23 minutes. Another one in India lost $13.5 million in just a few hours. Uh, and in the biggest cyber heist of, of all types in 2016, the Central Bank of Bangladesh lost $81 million. And they nearly lost actually $1 billion. It's only by chance that more was not stolen at the time. And, and also it's worth noting that the bank robbers are not just going uh, after money, they're also going after data. And how are the criminals going about this? How, how are they trying to gain access to these, these vast sums of money? So there's, there's various ways, and they've been evolving over the years. So like elsewhere, we have seen a rise in ransomware uh, and ransom payments. So banks are being held hostage by robbers, threatening to, to keep their data, to leak it, or to, to keep their systems locked uh, for an extended period of time. But ransomware is more prevalent in other sectors because banks are better protected. And there are some attack types that are specifically targeted at banks. Uh, so one early one was to get into the databases of the banks and to inflate the balances of uh, some of their customer accounts. And then the robbers would make transfers or they would go to ATMs and withdraw the extra cash and customers would never notice. Another one, slightly more recent, is to get into a bank and to spy on company staff and to spy on their routines and to steal the credential that they use to make international transfers. And they would make a fraudulent transfer at the moment when nobody's watching. Uh, so this is what happened with the Central Bank of Bangladesh, for example. When you say get in, do you mean just get in virtually or, or do they actually have somebody in the bank? 
Sometimes they recruit insiders. There's suspicions that happened in, in some of the recent heists. But more often, actually, uh, nowadays, they basically trick uh, the staff of the banks into clicking on, on a link or downloading uh, what we call a Trojan, which is a virus that creates a backdoor into a, a, a computer system that is embedded into a phishing email. So it's essentially the same technique that you know, they try to use to, to trick uh, you and I. They use to, to trick company staff, except it's much more sophisticated. Typically, there's a whole scenario around it that they've been planning for months. And what do we know about who these criminals are and where they are based? So bank robbers are basically the creme de la creme of, of hackers. And the reason for that is that they are likely to be backed by rogue states, uh, the smartest of them. So uh, North Korea, for example, and to a lesser extent, Iran as well. Uh, but often they are not based there. Uh, many seem to be living undercover in Russia or China. And, and also, actually, state-sponsored hackers have started to form alliances with some of the best of the, the private hackers, uh, typically Russian-speaking ones. And these tie-ups mean that cyber attacks or cyber hackers uh, have become a much more formidable threat for the banks. And how is this affecting the banks? Uh, I mean, in their bottom lines, presumably. Well, it is true that banks are overall well protected. So for now, we haven't seen a massive bank run uh, resulting in, in a bank collapsing. But it's costing them a lot of money. So first of all, you know, if you look at just the sums they invest in cybersecurity, uh, it's big money. For the biggest banks, it's between 500 million and $1 billion a year. And then you have the direct losses, uh, which result from an attack. So for example, if your system is down for a few hours, or if you've lost some money because it's been stolen, this can cost quite a lot of money. So Advisin, which is a consultancy I work with for this article, estimates that since 2000, we've had losses totaling about $12 billion. But it's probably much, much more because these are only reported losses. And also because you've got second order losses, so things that happen after the attack has been carried out. So, for example, when there is a data breach, typically customers become a bit wary, and some of them at a, are at a high risk of living. Typically, 27%, some studies suggest, want to leave after such an attack. And then there is a potential for litigation. There is a, a pretty high-profile case here in the UK this summer at the Supreme Court, uh, which may make it likelier or easier to organize a class action against a company that has lost some private data. And this could cost $100 million to banks. One thing I don't recall seeing often is a report of any of these criminals appearing in court. Is that just because I haven't been paying attention or are they really difficult to catch? No, you, I think you've been paying attention and, and this is a very good point. Actually, I think there are estimates that perhaps in the low single digit percent, so it's like maybe 4 or 5% of hackers are, are either caught and prosecuted. But it must be said that still, uh, forensic firms are doing a pretty good job at attributing attacks to specific hacking groups. And then intelligence agencies, so typically spies, are, are pretty good at linking those web handles to, to real people or real countries. And sometimes this allows for successful counter-offensive. In September, for example, the American army launched a, a pretty strong offensive against TrickBot, which is a, a virus that basically had many backdoors into many computer systems, including banks. And in January this year, Ukrainian police, in operation with, in partnership with European and American uh, counterparts, managed to arrest the thieves running another big uh, virus called Emotet, which is allegedly responsible for at least $2.5 billion in dollars of losses. And presumably there's a sort of arms race going on between the hackers, the thieves, and the banks as they put up their defences. Uh, I mean, is it possible to say who's winning? Is it, is it in, in balance at the moment? The thieves are getting stronger, more powerful. They're also getting richer 
And the banks are becoming costlier to secure because their networks are expanding online. So it's a global game of cat and mouse that is getting faster. Uh, the stakes are rising, but it's far from over and it's really hard to know how it ends. I mean, having spent quite a lot of time researching this, Mathieu, do you still keep your money in a bank or, or do you now have it under the mattress? <laughs> I still do because I think there's a, a greater uh, a, a likelihood that someone will get to my house to steal from under the mattress than actually someone getting into the bank. Mathieu Favre, thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. And finally, rarely in history have governments and economies had to incorporate so much change to the way they work so quickly. The pandemics led to experimentation with everything from home working to stimulus checks. As we've heard, some firms like SoftBank seem to have been adept at spotting the next big thing amid a general trend of massive technological disruption to businesses. Just think of Netflix and try to remember the last time you bought a DVD. So we're all waiting to see what the post-pandemic economy will look like, and that includes economists themselves, who may have to shift their thinking. Economists have for years neglected an evolutionary perspective on the way the economy works, and I think for that reason have sort of misunderstood the potential of the economy to change over time and to do things that they haven't really expected. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, our column on economics, and is shifting beats to become the trade and international economics editor, so this week's column will be his last for a while. In it, he's diving into a comparison between economic theory and Charles Darwin's ideas on natural selection. He tells us a bit more. There is resource competition. You have variety in the economy that leads to competition, and it leads to some ideas or some companies or some strategies winning out over others. And this process ends up leading to structural change in the economy over time in a way that looks a lot like biological evolution. In what sense? Can you give us an example of what you mean? Well, I think the place where an evolutionary approach has been most pronounced has been in the segment of the field that looks at how competition between firms uh, tends to work. And you, you have these neoclassical models that kind of imagine that firms are always maximizing their opportunities and competition works in kind of this very sort of uh, predictable, rigid way. And then you have this alternative perspective, which kind of takes inspiration from Joseph Schumpeter and his ideas about creative destruction, which sees firms as being a bit less rational, but more groping towards the best ways to do things and then competing with each other in this ongoing process. And it looks more like you'd imagine an ecosystem looks with some successful firms crowding out others. There's processes of adaptation as companies learn from other companies. And it seems to me like the evolutionary perspective does a much better job describing how the world actually works. And, and because it does that provides some interesting insights and is maybe something that people in other corners of the field could learn from. When you, when you talk in terms of evolution, are you thinking directly in terms of natural selection as in evolutionary biology or, or what? I think there are important parallels there. And I think it's interesting to go back to kind of the intellectual roots of economics in the 19th century and look at the ways in which economic thinkers at the time, like Thomas Malthus, actually had an influence on people like Charles Darwin. Uh, you know, Malthus sort of imagined this, this world where you had population growth leading to resource competition, which led to changes in the structure of the population. Darwin said that's pretty interesting, and that kind of informed his ideas. So it's 
there's a there's a relationship there. It's not a strict kind of you know we're directly importing the biological models into the economics, but it, it is it's a, you know there are clear influences in both directions. In in what way has ignoring that perspective had an impact on the way countries and indeed businesses run themselves? The approach that economists normally take, where you sort of have this equilibrium that's described by a system of equations. And you sort of look at the data in the past and, and that kind of suggests to you what the constraints within that equilibrium are. What it says is what the economy has done in the past places pretty significant limits on what you think it can do in the future. And so it's sort of a pessimistic uh, way of looking at the economy in a way and, and one which kind of doesn't allow for the full range of possibilities that we might actually think are out there. An evolutionary approach might say that, look, we, we're going to have new technologies that come along. Uh, we're going to have changes in the way people express their preferences for different goods or even in their values and culture. And over time, this can lead to pretty radical shifts in how the economy operates. The most dramatic example of, of this is what we saw in the 19th century, when the economy kind of evolved from a very slow-growing one that had been around for, for millennia into a fast-growing industrialized economy. And that was a, a pretty dramatic change that I think the equilibrium approach would never have imagined was really possible. Besides yourself, Ryan, who are the economists arguing for this change of approach you're advocating? Well, I think you see interest in this, uh, this approach in a few different places. One is within the field of industrial organization, within kind of business economics, focusing on how firms compete. Another is in the field of economics that kind of focuses on technology and innovation and, and the progress of ideas over the course of time. And then I think the most intriguing to me sort of development is uh, you, you see parts of the field becoming more comfortable with talking about culture as a thing that influences people, people's behavior. You know, within the sort of traditional framework, uh, economists tend to think that self-interest is this overriding motivation that kind of governs everything. And certainly self-interest matters. But people also make their choices based on, on, uh, on other factors, cultural factors like values, norms, um, things of that nature. And once you start talking about culture, you really do have to kind of think about uh, an evolutionary perspective, how it changes, how different ideas sort of compete with each other, different values compete with each other and change people's behavior over time. It opens up this, this very rich vein of possibilities in terms of thinking about how society works, how we get from point A to point B in history. And how does this affect economics as a forecasting tool? At the moment, I suppose you see a lot of commentary about when and how the world economy is going to get back to normal. But what you're suggesting seems to be that maybe there is no normal, that what is normal is constantly evolving. Well, I think that's right. There is no normal. There is no sort of stable equilibrium that we're going to return to. You know, I think that the history of the past 20 years uh, and the kind of the crises that we've had to deal with and the way that economies have changed in their structure as they've come out of them has really, uh, in my view, reinforced that point. You know, and as we're sort of looking at the post-pandemic economy and trying to figure out what it's going to look like. It seems clear it's going to be different from what we went into the pandemic with. There will have been a lot of businesses that went under. There will be new technologies that have appeared. There will be a lot of businesses and a lot of people who've had to adapt to new circumstances. And all those things will have changed the operation of the economy in subtle ways. And, you know, when the pandemic is over, we're not going to be at this new stable point. All these changes will continue to develop uh, and propagate over the, the years to come. And so, you know, I think you know, one, that's a, just a more accurate way of kind of thinking about what's happened with the economy. 
but it also, I think, in, in terms of trying to understand what's going to happen with policy or what policy ought to be uh, or what sort of things we ought to worry about, it encourages you to adopt a, a note of humility and say that, you know, we're not as certain as, as maybe we thought we were in the past or we shouldn't be as certain as maybe we were in the past about what's going to happen. We should be open to the possibility that things um, will, will work quite a bit differently. And is it happening? You, you describe a, a trend among some economists, but how difficult it is to, to adopt. Do you think there is a, a shift underway in the way economics evaluates the world? And will it have an impact? It's early days. Economics has been in a state of flux over the past 20 years. But it's interesting to think about economics itself as, as kind of a body of knowledge that's evolving. And to me, if you have a set of ideas that isn't working as well at explaining things as it could, then there's room for an alternative approach to kind of come in and compete and perhaps uh, eventually crowd out those old ideas. And so maybe what we need to see is evolution within economics in order to get more evolution in how economics sees the world. Ryan, thanks very much. I look forward to reading the column. Thank you, Simon. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Today's producer was Rory Galloway and our editor was Sandra Schmuley. Please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>